Thank you very much indeed. It feels like a long way from Hannah's song at the start of that chapter to the uh, devastating destruction of the House of Eli by the end of the chapter, doesn't it? Well, we're going to step back just a little from the uh, gory details of the second half of that chapter, and I want to introduce the book of Samuel by thinking about songs. And uh, let me tell you first of all about a chap called Henry Alonga, who sang in Kirkalla, in the village where I serve, uh, just about a month ago now. If I tell you that Henry sang that evening, you need to know from me who Henry Alonga is. You need to know uh, the context for the song, the content of the song, why he sang the song, what the audience was, and what their reaction was to him singing in that way. Are we going to need some lights on by the end of the evening, do you think, or are we all right for the moment? Do you think we're okay? We're okay. You're okay. I can see you still. can't see the background, but I can see Nero. Well, Henry Alonga is a delightful international cricketer who used to play for, Zim- play for Zimbabwe. And uh, some of you will know he wore a black armband on one arm as a protest against Mugabe. And uh, he had death threats against him for that reason and was thrown out of Zimbabwe. That's better. Uh, was thrown out of Zimbabwe. And he was singing at a special event uh, at which a friend of mine then preached the gospel. And he has the most amazing singing voice. If you go onto YouTube, he is absolutely wonderful. We're having a hog roast as a church family, 130 friends or so brought, and the people who heard him loved his singing. That was Henry Alonga who sang. On the same day at lunchtime, a fellow called Hiromicho sang. And that was a very different occasion. It was the same day, it was the same village, but you need to know who he is and what he was singing and why he was singing to make sense of his song. And he is a, a man from Japan, and he was singing alongside everybody else that particular day at a funeral, that lunchtime. It was a very tricky funeral. He sang Psalm 23 in English, although he speaks only very limited English. And the funeral for, was for his brother-in-law, who'd taken his own life at 41, leaving behind his wife and a seven-year-old daughter. And the little girl had only been told that her daddy had died, not that he'd taken his own life. And so everyone who sang alongside this man from Japan was grieving for the man who died, anxious about his wife, and feeling very uneasy about the fact that the little girl had not yet been told the truth about her father. Well, more cheerfully, sometime after the birth of her child, Hannah sang. And most of you will remember Hannah from Sunday groups over the years. And Hannah as a character, Hannah as an example. I won't do a survey just now. We might do this in a few minutes' time as to which stories you remember from 1 Samuel. And there's no test or exam, but just to see kind of what you do remember of the stories that you've heard earlier. Well, what's the story that makes sense of Hannah's song that when she sang? We know that she'd had a little boy. In the picture there, you probably can't see it in too much detail. It's a few years later, and she is handing over her little boy to old man Eli. And that seems like a crazy decision, doesn't it, for anyone to make when we see what kind of sons he had and what kind of place it was where he was in charge. Would you turn back in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1? Because I want to start off with Hannah when we first meet her. And then we'll come to her song in a bit. Let me just read 1 Samuel 1, verse 1 to you. Uh, there was a certain man of, should we call it, Ramathame Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. Now, that's a very ordinary place. We haven't sort of really heard of it in the Bible so far. 
But her husband, it says, has a very kind of noble pedigree. And his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. Whenever anyone gets a lot of names in the Old Testament, they're a big deal. And roughly speaking, the more names, the bigger deal the person is. And so this is an ordinary place, quite a decent sort of character as, as a man. And you see what we're introduced to him as, verse 2, he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the other Peninnah, and Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. So here's a man whose favorite wife, you'll see she was his favorite wife later, was barren, unable to have children. He's got a proud past, a noble pedigree, but he has no prospects for the future. Maybe he took a second wife. We're not told this exactly. Uh, Peninnah, because after a few years of infertility with Hannah, he wanted to go on and have a family. So it's a very unhappy household as we first meet them, and it's an unhappy situation for Hannah to be in. And the chapter is not recorded to show the stress and pain of infertility, although it does that. Nor is it recorded to show us the pitfalls of polygamy, although it again does that. That's not why it's written. We're in being invited to think about Hannah and the future. Here she is, a woman with no future. We're being invited to wonder with Hannah, is there anybody out there who can help her? And she, although she's in a sense center screen, she's not the only one who is waiting. God's people are waiting as well for a king to come and defend them and protect them from their enemies. I don't know what you think it was like for Hannah month after month to see still no sign of any kind of pregnancy. It wasn't easy for her. It wasn't easy for God's people either. There's a growing military threat from the Philistines, and we're going to meet them over this weekend. And all sorts of rot going on among God's own people. They're worshipping idols, it's clear, from the end of the book before. They've uh, had kind of civil war among themselves. Uh, curiously contemporary ring to it there's all kinds of homosexuality going on one of those passages in that book uh, refers to the book of Judges it's a very low end for God's people and they're not quite sure what the future holds they're not quite sure how to wait faithfully for the future they don't even know if they have a future and if you like Hannah's going to show us what it means to wait faithfully to God and her experience shows us where to direct our energies. I found as a Christian minister this part of the Bible very helpful in a time of, if you like, uh, church weakness, sort of anarchy in society, and uncertainty about where it's all going and where it's going to end. What does it mean to be a faithful church family? What does it mean to be a faithful Christian in a setting like this one? But before we get into detail, I want to think with you for a moment about how Hannah's story speaks to us today. How do we get from, if you like, Hannah over there to ourselves over here? We could ask the question, how does one woman's struggles, painful struggles with the issue of infertility from another culture from three centuries, uh, 3,000 years ago speak to us today? How do we travel across from one to the other? You'll have an idea about that. Most of us come from churches where we take it for granted that one Samuel is God's word to us, which it is. We're taught by Jesus repeatedly that the Old Testament looks forward to him. And we're shown by the example of the Lord Jesus that the Old Testament is God's word in every detail. And sometimes when he's arguing, he depends on very small detail. If God said this, therefore, is the shape of the argument. 
But it's easy for us to take it for granted that we can travel from there to here without thinking about how is 1 Samuel, God's word, to us today. So what I want to try to do in each of our sessions is to think with you about how we travel that journey. Uh, first of all, what, how not to go about it, and then to give you, if you like, a way of going about it that I hope you'll find straightforward to grasp and then very helpful and practical in your own lives going forwards. And the first point is to make is that we can't go by the direct route. If you like to travel straight from Hannah to here is to produce all kinds of problems and it always ends in tears. Let me give an example. Hannah was infertile and God heard her prayers and gave her a baby. A very unhappy way of traveling from her to here is if you are struggling with infertility and you pray, God will hear your prayers and give you a baby. That would be catastrophic as a way of travelling from there to here. Oh, and if he doesn't, it's because there's some unconfessed sin in your life or because you do not believe properly or because something else is going on. If you did it right, you'd get the same result as she did. You see how disastrous that is as a way of travelling from there to here. It always goes wrong if we do that in that way. So what we need to do if we're going to travel from Hannah to here is to spend long enough with Hannah in her world to hear what God was saying to them and then and there, if you like, before we travel from there to here. And I want to use the language of theatre to put a, a kind of four stages into your mind uh, that we're going to work at at each of these sessions. So if you think of, if you like, Hannah in the bottom left-hand corner of the slide, that's the story... <coughs> And we are over here in the bottom right-hand corner of the slide. That's us today. As we listen to her, we'll see that we're going to be moved by her suffering. We're going to be really glad to hear her singing as she celebrates God giving her the birth of a child. But as we listen to her and her story, we need to remember that somebody has, if you like, put her story on the stage. Somebody has decided to record her story. Somebody has written up what Hannah experienced and what she's saying. And, and the sort of question you might ask is, well, who put Hannah's story on the stage and why? Because the storyteller wants the people then, back there, back then, to hear this story. And not just to sort of, if you like, go to the theatre and have a good time and go home again. But the story is being told for a reason, to provoke a reaction, to make a difference in the lives of those who hear the story and see the story put on stage. And we might want to think together, we might not want to think overnight. What sort of reaction among God's people was the storyteller who puts Hannah on the stage seeking? Is she a kind of model for God's people? Is she an exceptional example of a believer among God's people? Just beginning to think, what is Hannah center stage showing us? Do you see that? So we don't come to, to uh, Hannah's story, uh, if you like, as members of God's Old Testament people. We come to Hannah's suffering as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. We come to Hannah's suffering, if you like, this side of Easter. So there's another, another major figure who stands, if you like, at the side of the road and I want to take you the long way around, the road from the story to the stage and then back to here. And the person who stands beside the road that runs from Hannah to here is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the saviour. I try to make these stages as straightforward to remember as possible. So we go from the story to the stage, and then we travel to the saviour. Because once we've begun to grasp Hannah's story and grasp not only the facts, but also, if you like, the emotions and the spiritual challenges that Hannah was facing, we can then think about why her story was worth staging. Listen to the storyteller who puts her on stage for all to see. And then as New Testament believers, as we look at Hannah, center stage then, we need to travel in our mind's eye towards the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior, and learn from him. Now, there are several ways we can travel from Hannah to the Savior. Several ways of getting there. Don't worry about any of this now. Just grasp what I'm sort of I'm trying to set out, because we'll have a go at this together over our sessions. We can use the big story of the Bible. I was talking to somebody earlier. He said, you know, the big story of the Bible. We go from creation to full to redemption to new creation. And we see the story in the light. Where are we in that big four-episode story? We could go from, is there some kind of promise here that's gagging for a fulfillment later? That's another way of traveling. There are sometimes patterns, aren't there? Uh, or Jesus himself will pick something up and describe himself as being a fulfillment specifically of something that's gone earlier. Sometimes the New Testament tells us when Pentecost happens, this is that, says Peter. And he refers God's people back to Joel to make sense of what's happening in the marketplace. They're not drunk. This is what Joel said would happen. So all kinds of ways of traveling from Hannah to the Savior. For example, we'll spend some time thinking during the week about how the weekend during how Hannah's song is echoed by Mary's song. Hannah's delighted at the birth of her child, full of excitement at all that God promises. Mary sings in a similar way subsequently. You know, it's like when you have children in the back of the car and you're on the way to the beach, and just as you pull out of the drive and turn left at the end of the drive, they say, are we there yet? And uh, that goes on for the rest of the journey. However, it's a three-hour journey or a 20-minute journey. Well, we can feel a little bit like that on the way from Hannah, from the story to the stage to the Savior. We are nearly there yet. There's just one more section of the journey to complete. And what I've called us, if you're just falling off the edge of the slide, I've called us the sinners in the stalls, all right? So we are here in the stalls. We are all sinners. That's what we have in common. We're gathered from different places, but we are all of us together sinners. And the, the story takes us by at that route. And then in that way, as we come to the story as sinners, we can hear God speak to us. So we're going to travel around stage by stage, step by step, as it were, through these stages, we're not Hannah. Again, it's important. In Sunday school, it's kind of tempting to be thinking that I'm the central character. And probably all six-year-olds read all stories if they are the central character. But we're not six anymore. So we're not Hannah as we come to the story. We're listening to her. We're moved by her. We're hearing her as she sings. We're seeing what's happening to her. We're not the first audience to see Hannah and hear Hannah either. And you may want to think overnight. It's not always very easy in all Old Testament stories to do this, but who were the first people who listened to Hannah? Who were the first people who heard the story of Hannah put on stage for them? Where were we in the Old Testament story? We might have a go at that tomorrow. And then as Christians, we set Hannah on stage and all that's going on among God's people then, alongside the Savior, 
And we can immediately see all kinds of connections. God, who came to rescue his people through Hannah's son, came to rescue us through Mary's son. And then how do we move from the Savior to our own lives, as it were, sitting here in the stools, knowing that we are sinners? Well, there's a whole variety of ways, but just here's a picture of three of them. Uh, We'll come back to these, a mirror, a pair of glasses, and a wedding invitation. A mirror, just James, uh, all of scripture is like a mirror showing us our sin and shortcoming and our need of God and what needs changing. Uh, Glasses is Calvin's picture that actually all of scripture brings God up close to us and makes us see spiritual reality more sharply, brings God into clearer focus for us. And then that last little picture is a wedding invitation. It may not think of scripture like this, but all of scripture heads off to a great big wedding reception, doesn't it? It heads off to that party that God arranges for his son. Well, you could think of the whole of scripture as an invitation to show up, to experience, to find out that actually we're the bride, as you prayed earlier. We're invited to know God so intimately. So every passage is, in a sense, on the way to that, is an invitation to know God more deeply. Well, will you come back with me just for a moment? We're just going to do a little bit more work together. What sort of story is one Samuel? If I just ask that question slightly baldly at the moment, I could then say to you, well, the clue is in the title. One Samuel is the first half of a two-volume story. So if we're going to read it, um, leaving Sunday groups behind, leaving Sunday school behind, we come to it, it's a two-volume story. Right? We know that right from the start. So whatever it's about, it stretches not just through one Samuel, but right the way to the end of two Samuel. And if we come to Hannah's song, it comes at the start, and it turns out that it's matched by another song right at the end of the story, which is sung by King David. There's just one more song that comes in the middle of the story, which is again sung by King David, where David grieves over the death of Saul and the death of Jonathan on the battlefield. So this is Friday night. You're doing great. Keep going. It's all right. Um, so you can, you can see what's happening here. You've got a two-volume story with a song at the start and a song at the end and a song in the middle. Well, those songs must be doing something, mustn't they? It's not just a collection of lyrics, like we pick up the hymn book over there. It's all songs. And it's not just stories. It's stories with three songs. One at the start, one at the hinge in the middle, and one at the end. Well, that must matter. They must be there for a reason. And without trying to prove it tonight, I want to suggest to you that Hannah's song at the start is the kind of backing track for the whole of the big story that follows, David's song at the end, if you like, echoes Hannah's song, looking back, and David's other song in the middle looks both ways. In other words, the storyteller has deliberately set up the song to interpret the story that follows. I'll to try and prove that to you over the next couple of days. Now, if we came again looking in slightly more detail at one Samuel and said, what sort of story is it? I'm not going to do this in detail. Samuel dominates the first bit of it, where the little things are, reflects the structure. Chapter 8 is an important conversation about what it means to have a king. Then we see Saul for a bit, and he doesn't do so well. And then there's the kind of overlapping uh, stories of Saul and David. Saul on the throne, he's been rejected by God. David anointed by God, but not yet on the throne from God. And then all of 2 Samuel is about David. And we might ask all kinds of questions about the story. 
but it's Friday night, so we're not going to go into a lot of detail at this stage. Sort of questions we could ask is, who cares? That's always worth knowing, isn't it? You tell a story, who cares? Why do I need to care? What's in it for me? And then how do we get to have a king? And why David? And what happened to Saul? And how does the king, this kind of new way of ruling over God's people, relate to the word? We had prophets. What's wrong with Samuel? That we should have a king in the first place. Those are all Old Testament type of questions. Do you see that? I'm not going to go into detail. just want to say, if we're thinking about this, we've left Sunday school behind decades ago. We're now thinking about this as, as adult readers. These are some of the questions we're bound to be asking. But we're not going to worry about any of that tonight. Will you just, in a sense, let me introduce Hannah to you and to think with you for a few minutes about the kind of pressure that she is under. Okay. <coughs> So if you like headings, there are three coming up. And I'm just going to stay in this first chapter, and we'll come to a song tomorrow. So first, first scene. And again, stories usually have scenes that are set side by side. And we'll go on through the scenes, then step back from them and say, OK, what are they saying to us tonight on a Friday evening? Look in verse 3. Now, this man, that's Elkanah, used to go up to, year by year from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. We don't know what the sacrifice is, but just he's a kind of man of faith. He goes up every year. He's, he's doing things, if you like, by the book. There's a kind of predictable routine to his faith, which is good at this stage. Nothing to criticize him for so far. Look in verse 4. Same every year. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Now, that's a scene of great unhappiness, isn't it? There's a slap-up dinner every year, a piece of meat for each wife, and one for each of the children. And Peninnah, every year, has got another plate, another child, and she gets at least one more portion each year. And by this stage, she's got at least four children, and she's still going strong. And Hannah, well, she gets one extra portion because her husband really loves her, but she only needs one plate. Well, Penina needs five. And you see, every year they go through the same routine. So look in verse 7. It went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, this is Penina, she used to provoke Hannah. And therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. It's a very uncomfortable household. Every year, Hannah suffers the same ordeal. Penina cracks jokes about, oh, plates and infertility. And she cracks on, the, make, goes on making these jokes until she's reduced Hannah to tears. And the same acting every year, Hannah pushes her plate away and she goes out in floods of tears. It's a very horrible scene, isn't it? She's a very horrible woman. And Hannah is caught in this domestic difficulty, this domestic agony year after year, knowing it's going to happen again. Elkanah loves her. You see in verse 5, he gives her an extra portion because he loves her. But it's not really enough. And he's a bit clueless. Look in verse 8. He says to her at the end of verse 8, he says, Don't I mean more to you than uh, ten sons? It's a very, very stupid question, isn't it? It really is. If you're a husband, may I just um, give you some advice? Um, it's absolutely no wonder that uh, she is depressed and can't eat and she's tearful. So her problem is not that her husband doesn't love her. He does love her. 
It's not that uh, he's infertile. He has children with the other woman, lots of them endlessly producing children. Her problem is that God has made her barren. Look in verse 5. To Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And in case we hadn't noticed, verse 6, her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. That seems to be the main point of this particular scene. If you didn't get it in verse 5, get it in verse 6, says the storyteller. This is about God and Hannah, and God has made it impossible for Hannah to have a child. Uh, Peninnah, her rival, is a vicious enemy. Her husband, Elkanah, is no help to her. He does nothing to protect her, but her real problem is that God has closed her womb and will not give her a child. Well, that does make us think, doesn't it? Because when disaster comes, a serious illness or accident, Hannah's experience at least suggests that for some reason God has allowed this. We may never understand the reason. At this point, Hannah's no idea why this is happening to her. But Hannah's experience underlines that God is still in control of our lives, whatever may happen, however painful and prolonged it may be. And just think about um, that word prolonged. God allows Hannah to go on suffering year after year. Look at the start of verse 7. It says, so it went on year by year. And you say, whoa, this is part of God's plan for Hannah. He builds this painful experience into her life, and he doesn't remove it. He allows Penana to get her, reduce her to tears every year. He allows Elkanah to fail to protect her every year. And it goes on year after year after year. Well, now I'm going to move for a moment from, if you like, the story that I set out earlier to the stage. If I'm right to suggest that Hannah's experience is being put on stage for all God's people to see, well, it might be that what God allows her to suffer personally, he may well allow us to suffer corporately. Do you see that? In, in her experience, it's captured the experience of God's people as a whole. And there, so there she is waiting and weeping, and God's not fixing it. And that goes on for year after year after year, and still God doesn't come to the rescue. And it may just be that Hannah's suffering and her weeping is put on stage to prepare God's people for the kind of suffering that is going to go on year after year after year without God coming to the rescue. Do you see that? Well, then let me move very briefly from the stage, the stage up there, to the Savior, if you can imagine that. Because the New Testament shows us the Lord Jesus weeping. And he weeps for a number of different reasons on a number of occasions. He weeps at the grave of a friend. You may want to talk about why he weeps over supper later. He weeps over Jerusalem. And when he's weeping over Jerusalem, he's weeping at the disastrous state of God's people. He's weeping at the prospect of God's judgment, which will come some decades later and crush them. Now I'm going to move very briefly from the saviour to the stalls. Hannah had very good reasons for her tears, didn't she? 
God's people who saw her story on the stage found themselves with very good reasons for weeping. The Lord Jesus had good reasons for his tears. Now, we may find ourselves longing for God to do a new thing in our city, to sort out the moral chaos we talked about earlier in our country, the moral failure among God's own people. And Hannah's experience at least suggests to us we may find ourselves waiting and waiting and weeping year after year, until God in his own time takes action to bring trouble to his enemies and relief to his people. Well, there's Hannah under pressure. Let's have a look at uh, Hannah at prayer. All right, let's go on a little bit. Verse 9, we're still in Shiloh, and Hannah has left the party in floods of tears, as usual, and she goes to the sanctuary, and the old man Eli is... uh, sitting on a chair by the door. Uh, the chair is a mark of uh, uh, his high office as a high priest. Everybody else sat on the floor. And the language in verse 10 there is very strong. Uh, one version says, in bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much. This version says, deeply distressed. And in verse 11, she makes a vow she says, oh, this is NIV, O Lord Almighty, if you'll only look on your servant's misery and remember me uh, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, I'll give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall ever be used on her head. You see what Hannah does? She, she takes her pain to the Lord who's made her barren. She's bitter at what God has done to her. And our storyteller doesn't sort of pop up from behind a bush and say, oh, it's terrible that she's bitter. It just records what she experiences. And she vows that if God will give her a son, then God can have him. And he'll be especially consecrated in God's service. And we're really hoping he's not going to turn out like Samson. Because he was the last guy we had who was never going to get a haircut. And he wasn't a great result. It wasn't great that Hannah was the leader, that Samson was the leader. And you now notice that Eli shows to Hannah his own particular pastoral sensitivity. Do you see in verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? There she is praying, and she think, he thinks she's been drinking. He accuses her of being drunk. She's been pouring her heart out to the Lord, but he thinks she's had three too many with her supper. What do you make of that? Well, I suggest it's a picture of the moral standards that poor old Eli has been getting used to now that his sons are more or less in charge. The fact that he could even think that she was drunk when she came to the temple to pray shows the disastrous moral standards among God's people that he has got used to. And her attack, his attack on her simply increases her isolation. And you may have found clergy absolutely useless when you're in crisis. Or clergy know how to be useless, I'm one of them. Do you see, her husband is no help to her, the clergy are no help to her, and he just makes things worse. She defends herself. She says, look, I'm not drunk, I'm desperate, not drunk. And she has, in all sincerity, been pouring out her heart to the Lord. And he recovers and he reassures her, and uh, he pronounces God's blessing He reassures her that God really has been listening to her prayer, and she believes him. 
Now, what do you think about the impact of this part of the story? If we take the story with Hannah at prayer and put it on the stage for a minute, what, what, what are we going to see if we see Eli on stage for a few moments and Hannah praying Eli's catastrophic misreading of what she is doing? Well, we could go from the stage and see the failure of Eli as high priest and go to the Savior and see the wonder of the Lord Jesus as our high priest. When you go pray, Lord Jesus, you don't say you're drunkard. Do you see that? And we can speak freely to the Lord Jesus, knowing confidently that our high priest is able to sympathize us with us in all our weakness, and yet was without sin. Do you see how I traveled from the story to the stage to the Savior and back here in just a sentence and a half? Well, there's Hannah at prayer. Let's come to God answering Hannah's prayer. That's uh, scene three. Look at the end of verse 19. We're told in the end of verse 19, after they've gone home, uh, he and his wife, Arkana, knew his wife, uh, uh, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. Do you look back in verse 11 and see what she prayed? She asked God to remember her. Verse 18, that's what he did. She asked him to remember her, not to forget all about her. And we can see that God has a very powerful memory. Do you remember what he said to Moses when he met with him at the burning bush? He says he's remembered his people. Bible readers say, whoa, God is remembering it. Is this a new start that we're, we're going to have a kind of a new movement forward in the story on the same scale as that moment when God, he had a powerful memory then and took powerful action then. He's remembered Hannah. What's going to happen next in the story? And then do you see what happens? That Hannah takes the initiative. She gives her son the name. She explains her son's name. He's the son that uh, she asked for. And the words sound roughly the same in the original. The waiting is over. Here is a new future. It's bound up in the life of this boy. I've already made this move from the story to the stage. Put Hannah knowing God has remembered her on the stage, God's people remember an earlier episode in the story. Very wonderful. What sort of saviour will he be? Will come to the saviour with me. Mary's song as she celebrates her pregnancy is full of the language of God remembering to be merciful. That same language reappears in Mary's song that was there in Hannah's song. And if you come to our song, does God remember when you pray? Well, of course he does. He's our father. He never forgets any of his children. God receives Hannah's praise. Just the last uh, reflection on this uh, particular part. It's a fourth scene in this particular part of the story. For two or three years, uh, Hannah and Elkanah stay. Hannah stays at home while Elkanah goes up to the temple. And both, in a sense, Elkanah and Eli are essentially passive in this scene. It's Hannah and God who are the major players. Hannah returns to Shiloh about four years later. They wean babies at about three years. Imagine breastfeeding for three years. She's ready to keep her promise and give the boy Samuel back to God. 
and she'll hand him over to Eli. To us, that seems extraordinary. She'll take him to the temple. She reminds Eli what went on four or five years earlier, and she gives back the boy she's received from God, and he'll spend his whole life in God's service. She meant what she said. She'll be bound by her promise. It must have been so difficult for her. It must have felt like madness to leave a little boy with a weak old man like Eli, surrounded by dreadful characters like Hophni and Phinehas, his two sons. What would you feel like leaving your little boy in a home like that? What does our storyteller expect God's people to, to learn from them? Why does he tell them about God and Hannah and Hannah's new baby? Let's just put her on the stage for a moment with this last scene. Do you notice that, you will notice this, that she was a woman, not a man? That's a big deal, again, in the Bible. Because our storyteller is holding up Hannah's experience for all God's people to see. And she must have been a great encouragement to all the women among God's people in what was very much a man's world, whether or not they had children of their own. A great work of God, which takes two volumes to record, starts here, and it starts with Hannah. May I say to all the men in the room, this is a very important lesson for the men. Our chapter shows us it's not necessarily what the men are doing that really matters. Diana, my wife, tells me this is very obvious and all women know it already, but I'm not sure it's very obvious to all men all the time. And you notice the men in this chapter are useless. Hannah triggers God's plan, not Elkanah, not Eli, and not Eli's sons. She, if you like, is the hero of the story. So Hannah, we're easily told, aren't we, that uh, the Old Testament is kind of uh, sexist in all sorts of ways, but actually no, Hannah here, center stage. And then you notice the, that Hannah goes to the temple to pray. Big emphasis in this particular chapter. In verse 10, we're told, in business of soul, she went much and prayed to the Lord. Verse 12, she kept on praying. Verse 16, I have been praying out of my anguish and grief. Verse 26, I stood here before you praying. Verse 27, I prayed for this child. If you're taking notes, those verses are 10, 12, 16, 26, and 27. Couldn't get a clearer emphasis on prayer is what is the key to unlocking this next movement in God's purpose. And when Hannah prays, God remembers her. Well, if she's on the stage for all God's people to see, you think of the church family, do you, do you pray in your church family? If I could see your Google diary, do you pray? I know cast down guarantees that God will answer us exactly the same way that he answered her, but if we don't ask, Lord Jesus says you don't have because you don't ask. And then you see how, so we thought about Hannah as a woman, and then her prayer, and then God responds to Hannah's initiative. Normally in the Bible, it's God who takes the initiative himself. He sends an angel or an oracle, and he sort of makes the first move. But in one chapter, Samuel chapter 1, there's no angel and there's no oracle. And what's remarkable about this, and all Bible readers can see this, is that the God of Israel himself, and you prayed earlier of his splendor and majesty, the great creator God who is above us and different from us, responds to the prayers of an ordinary woman. She's nothing special. She has no particular virtue. She's completely ordinary. And surely that's the point about her. 
And her experience shows us that, that God is the sort of God when someone like Hannah prays, he listens. And when she pours out her soul to him, he, he sees her tears and he answers her prayers. And I think that's very beautiful. And God gave Hannah what she asked for. She asked for a son. There's a great big emphasis on the fact that Hannah asked for a son. Look in verse 20. She said, I asked for him from the Lord. Verse 27. She says, for this is this child I prayed. And the Lord has granted my petition that I made to him. Other version, granted me what I asked of him. God gave Hannah her son. But if you put her on the stage, God's people can see, looking back on Hannah's experience, that God gave Hannah what she asked for. But not only what she asked for, he gave her far more than she had asked for. In fact, God gave Hannah far more than she could ask or, or even imagine. Her son turned out to be Samuel. He's the leader that God's people have been waiting and waiting for. He's the last and the greatest of the judges. He'd put a stop to the rot that they hadn't really put right. He spoke God's word to the people. He's the first in the line of the prophets. He's going to lead God's people to a famous victory against the Philistines. And all that's on the stage. But if we travel to the Savior, and we think of uh, Hannah's uh, successor, Mary, as she sings of the birth of her son, and we travel from the Savior to ourselves in the stalls, what, what do we notice about what the what God does for us through the answer to our prayers. And the Apostle Paul tells us that uh, our God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. He says, because God is like that. Well, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And I want to suggest you can see that God listening to Hannah, and that God hearing her prayer, and that God moving the story forward when she cries out to him. And what an encouragement to us to cry out to him ourselves. Why don't you just take a moment to, to draw from what we've been thinking of tonight one thing to take to bed with you, one thing that's really struck you. Do that in quietness, and then in a minute I'll ask you to tell your neighbour and then we'll pray, and then we're going to have supper. We're going to sing again first, are we? Okay. So just a minute. Think of one thing to take to bed that you've been really struck by in this first chapter in Hannah's story. Off you go. Okay, let's, let's carry on those conversations over supper. Choose, choose that one thing to take to bed with you. Let's pray together now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Hannah. We thank you for the story of her suffering month after month after month and year after year after year. And we thank you for the way in which she cried out to you, wept bitter tears before you. And in spite of all the men in the chapter, we thank you very much for the way in which you heard her, answered her. We thank you you are the God who hears you're the God who remembers his children. Thank you for the way in which you take action in answer to our prayer. 
And we thank you that as you gave Samuel to your people, so you gave to us the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for all that you give to us in him. And we pray that you'll fill us this weekend with fresh delight in him. And we may see more of his glory. And we ask for his name's sake. Amen.